Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Monty Belmonte is discovering his inner sailor in the cape sadly less full of cod than they used to be, but still inspiring, if only in the manner of sneaking bottles of wine onto the beach. Sorry, Benson, he couldn't find cans. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Rusty Polsgrove of Rise for Social Justice in Springfield, an organization holding its 13th annual Juneteenth celebrations at Emerson's Park in Springfield. That's awesome in and of itself, but Arise has been supporting a multitude of causes in its 30-odd years, and we'll touch on some of those as well. Right now, more of our conversation with Revan Schendler and Trenda Lofton, both worker owners at the Compost Cooperative in Greenfield. I want to bring into the conversation the absence of the state. The absence of the state in supporting the development of housing people can afford, the absence of the state in educating people so that they don't get caught in the prison system, the absence of the state setting up municipal programs so that people can divert their food scraps and contribute to you know, efforts to address the climate crisis. There's been a radical disinvestment in communities in the last 30 years and 40 years, and we're seeing the effects of it. In in Greenfield, our trash is currently shipped by rail to South Carolina. And before that, it was incinerated in Springfield, before the incinerator was closed down. Uh-huh. Before the incinerator closed down, Springfield had the highest childhood asthma rate in the country, and now it has the 12th highest asthma rate in the country. So it's really important that we don't export our trash and make incineration or landfill some some other community's problem. This can only happen at the level of the state. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts should require every household to divert not only its recycling, but its compostable waste, Mm -hmm. just like Vermont does, so that we can cut down on, on shipping fees, on tipping fees, and address the problem of the climate crisis. Everything that we're doing is really interesting and fantastic and community-based, but it's because of the breakdown of state support for critical human needs like housing and access to healthy food and the ability to grow your own food if you don't have access to, to healthy food. So I love what we're doing. I always want to toot our horn, and I also want to say that it's in the context of this real breakdown in investment in communities. I think that works on two fronts, too, not just in the compost end of things, but also in the reintroducing people who have been incarcerated back into society end of things. Like there is no state or much local investment in doing that either. It's not as if these people don't still exist and not like they're going to not exist when they leave prison. So it seems as if it would behoove us as a society, as community, to reinvest in those people and getting them to be like up to speed. It's like, okay, awesome, you're you're back. Like this is what it's like now. Welcome back. Well, we got you. We've got support for you to be here and be a a giving part of the community. So I think you're actually attacking this on two fronts, really. (laughs) And congratulations, and I'm sorry. Well, hopefully, you know, there'll be a time where so much of what folks are doing independently or in small collectives or, you know, channeling all their personal resources to make something happen won't be as necessary because we'll have these huge networks of collective cooperative support systems, including the state and government systems. I 
can't help but acknowledge the importance of us getting ahead of things, right? I think we are we're constantly playing fix it to mm-hmm. things that have already been done, right? Like how do we support folks coming out of prison and jail, right? It's like, yes, very important. But also and- how do we stop people from going to jail for things that really don't matter very much? Exactly, exactly. How do we continue to reduce the profit-making strategies around putting bodies in cages, right? And then the importance of really building a system that from the time you are coming into this world as a human, (laughs) you know what I mean? That there are supports and that we're anchored in building with each other from the very beginning. Quick shout out to Six Bricks, who continues to have expungement clinics at their cannabis dispensary in Springfield, which is, again, along these lines. But but it's part of why, again, like this business model is so interesting and fascinating and very, very cool. And it's not just the compost end of things. You have bought a building now for the compost cooperative. Why would the compost cooperative need a building in the first place? And how is that going? Because I know you're also like kind of building it back up from <laughs> not quite the ground, but from very near to. Yes, that is so accurate. It's so accurate. So I came on with the compost cooperative, was it 2019? 2019. And one of the things that just became really clear through our friendship and hearing about the compost cooperative over the last couple years is that most of the people who get out and want to work with us and get excited about working with us haven't been able to find stable, affordable, healthy living situations, right? And so a lot of folks who were leaving, it was because of their housing. So we recognized that despite the advocacy that was happening, particularly, you know, Revin connecting with other landlords, connecting with folks who do housing stuff, is that when you carry a record, particularly if it's a felony, housing becomes so much more challenging. And that's compounding the realities of that. This area and across the country in a lot of places, right, housing is already for many people inaccessible because of price, because of the lack of availability, and quite frankly, because of how many houses are sitting vacant and going back into the earth, composting Mm. themselves, (laughs) right? Connections everywhere. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true, right? And so when we identified that in order for the compost cooperative as a business to be sustainable and for us to meet the mission of a co-op, which is to meet the needs of the members. The need of the members became very clear that housing was an absolute need, right? And one could argue, right, we were talking about one of the reasons why people go back inside after they get out and they identified meaningful living wage work as a key issue. The other key issue is houselessness, right? Or being forced into living situations that are unsafe. So so we were like, mm, what if we bought a house? <laughs> Sometimes the answers are that simple. Right? Yeah. And Even so, though they are, they end up being complicated on the other end. But like the basic answer is like, well, we should maybe buy a house for our, our worker owners so that they have a place to stay that's not unsafe, that's not violating things to send them back inside. That's the easy part of the answer. Mm-hmm. What's the difficult part of the answer? <laughs> The difficult part of the answer is money and (laughs) capacity, right? But interestingly, once we made the choice that we were going to buy a house, 
voice that desire and that mission to community, there was incredible support, right? So the first house that the compost cooperative was under contract to purchase. So if you know the process at all, you make an offer. If you're lucky, the seller accepts it. And then you enter into an inspection period. So we got under contract to purchase a four-unit building in Greenfield. We were very excited. Get in for the, what was it, six-hour? Eight-hour. Eight-hour inspection. Oh, my goodness. And it was about 95 degrees that day? Oh, no. It was so hot and so long and thorough. I love thorough. I will geek out on a home inspection 100%. (laughs) But it became really clear that we did not have the financial resources, the knowledge, or the capacity to facilitate a renovation. At this point, it was just really Revan and I Mm -hmm. leading that part of the process. But then I got to talk about this mission with the Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops. And a part of that crew was someone by the name of Carl Woodruff, who happens to be a worker owner of Oxbow Design Build Cooperative. And he asked the great question, how can we support your project? (laughs) So thus from there began a partnership between Compost Cooperative and Oxbow Design Build, which not only increased our capacity, brought knowledge into the space, right? They could walk into a building and be like, okay, here's what we do to fix it up. And we have the people that know how to do it. And here's about how much that's going to cost. Now things change once you get into a building, start opening walls. Start seeing what's going on for real, for real. (laughs) (laughs) Every, Every house has a story, and sometimes that story is in the walls. It's so true. Sometimes it's in the basement. (laughs) Sometimes it's all of it. Sometimes it's all of it. So we we were able to close on a dilapidated two-family in Greenfield on a half acre near a grocery store. It's so perfect, right? Mm Because there's so many components that we have to think about Mm -hmm. when we think about what is accessible, what is sustainable. And what access looks like and what it means in varying forms. Yes. So that seems pretty clutch, not to mention that you have the possibility on that land, which now belongs to the compost cooperative, to do more, to build more, to provide more, which is even even cooler. I am with two worker owners of the compost cooperative up in Franklin County. But speaking of people to come in and collaborate with, the initial capital to make this happen, who partnered with you to get the Compost Cooperative established? Revan Schindler, (laughs) worker owner of the Compost Cooperative. Like many people coming out of jail or prison, we didn't have any credit when we started. And it's been a goal of the co-op from the beginning not to use members' personal taxes or credit in the business context. So we didn't have anything. And we didn't even have Trenda to help us with crowdfunding. So we did a Indiegogo. We did an Indiegogo campaign. And with that, we got a really beat up old truck and some insurance and some 64-gallon containers. And we started with one customer, the People's Pint in Greenfield. I think initially all we had was social capital 
the people we knew who could give, and dozens and dozens of people helped us, and we launched in May of 2018. And I think once we incorporated as a for-profit business and were able to show local funders, local social justice funders, that we had community support, there began to be an outpouring of local support from, for example, the Markham Nathan Fund for Social Justice. They helped us even before we began covering costs like workers' comp insurance and T-shirts and things like that. So I think that the trajectory of fundraising for the co-op, since we have not been successful except through the housing project of acquiring loans, it's it's all about like cobbling together different sources of funds from people interested in supporting different parts of the co-op. We've gotten grants to support the diversion effort, grants to support workforce development, the training program that we have so that everybody who is working for the co-op, the assumption is they want to become a worker owner and they need the training to do that. So as Trenda was saying before, we encourage openness and expressing one's ideas, but this is way more difficult done than said. Right. right. As you were saying, Trenda, dismantle some of the conditioning and also practice. Like you can't just join a group of people and start critiquing what's happening or offering some some ideas. It's a cultural and neurological shift that has to take place. If you've been told that you're stupid or you're you, you're dealing with trauma or whatever the reason for not feeling like you have a voice or people want to hear you has to be undone before you can contribute in that way. Some funders have supported our training programs, whether it's outside training that we pay for or internal training that we organize ourselves. Over time, we've, we've, we've cobbled together enough support to, you know, now we have two and a half full-time equivalent jobs and uh, sick employees. That's wonderful. All oh, big smiles all around. How is the house coming along? Yeah, how is the house coming along? Oh, it's stunning. It's stunning. It's been a slow journey, you know, the uncovering of, oh, what does it look like to seek federal funds, city and federal funds, um, and the, the grant making process that goes along with that, and the discoveries of renovating a dilapidated building. But it's absolutely gorgeous. We have really prioritized making this home energy efficient, moving as energetically, yeah, I guess energetically and environmentally <laughs> responsibly as we can. Back to back. Uh, no. <laughs> so we've been able to essentially retrofit the house so that not only is it going to be affordable rent-wise, it's also going to be affordable utilities-wise because it's actually energy efficient. And that's one of the things that's often foregone in affordable housing. We'll call it like the big A affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So we're really proud of that. We are excited to be able to house folks next month. Oh, wow. Um, so we are very, very very close cabinets and appliances and things like that are starting to go in and um, it's really coming together. So if people want to get more involved or find out more information about the Campos Cooperative, where do they go? Who do they talk to? www.thecompostcooperative.com is where you can find out all about us, learn how to connect with us. You can find out about the housing initiative through that website. Yeah, that's the best way I'd say. What about you? Thank you so much, Reverend Schindler and Trendle Lofton from the Compost Cooperative in Franklin County. You can find out more of what they do and be a part of it online. Perfect. Thank yeah. you. No problem. Thank you for, Thank you for coming. Thank you for having us. This was a delight. <laughs>
Fun. Compost Cooperative is holding one last push this weekend, putting the finishing touches on the house they've been building for themselves, and they're looking for volunteers to help out with that. You can check the links in the show notes for more info on that if you'd like to help. But up next, Rusty Polesgrove of Arise for Social Justice and Springfield's Juneteenth celebrations. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Juneteenth, which we've been talking about all week, happens on Monday, June 19th. And that one of the older celebrations in the area is the one we're discussing today. Arise for Social Justice throws its 13th annual Juneteenth celebration this year. And here to talk with us about it is Rusty Polesgrove, an environmental justice specialist with Arise. Rusty, thank you for joining us. Hi, it's really great to be here with you all. (laughs) So how did you come to be a part of Arise for Social Justice? Well, um, I'm a UMass undergraduate student, a part-time student, and about two years ago now, uh, I met Tatiana Cheeks, the president of the board, through one of the classes I was taking in the engineering department, and she said she needed somebody to work full-time and to do this environmental justice stuff. (laughs) I had never done it before, but I care about the environment, and I love the city of Springfield. And it just happened to work out really well. So what are some of the campaigns that you've worked on with them so far? Oh, my goodness. Well, they keep me real busy. <laughs> um, the, the big ones right now, definitely our mold campaign. This past April, we had the city sanitary codes changed to include mold and persistent dampness. And so now we're trying to get the city to get on it with enforcement and education for code enforcers. Our staff is going to start taking some um, mold classes, so we're also able to help tenants with these issues and going to court. So for folks who may not necessarily be affected, although we're in New England and people live in old houses, and I'm not entirely sure how you might have avoided this, but what are some of the health issues that come up with having mold in your house? on the walls. (laughs) It's really a case-by-case basis. There are some people who do not have a mold allergy or sensitivity. They could live in a house full of mold and never have one symptom or one problem. If you're sensitive or you're allergic, I know that I am, um, you're going to have your really typical um, upper respiratory allergy symptoms. Um, Oftentimes, this is sneezing, runny nose, puffy eyes, itchy, sometimes a rash. I know that when I'm in places that have mold, I need an inhaler. So I'm a human mold detector. I walk in a building. If I need that inhaler. They they can't just use you every time they want to make sure. And also, that's really unsafe for you. So (laughs) Workplace hazards. It's all of these things. And mold is something that's not really researched. It's something that we truly do not know a lot about. And so there are some people that are saying, hey, maybe mold has these bigger implications with brain problems or other respiratory issues or other um, like immune issues. And so, you know, it's, it's also one of those things that doctors don't look for. And so if you're having a mold problem, you're having these allergy symptoms and you go to a doctor, they're going to tell you to take a Claritin and they're not, and they're going to be like, Oh, maybe it's your dog. Maybe it's the pollen right now. And so we often recommend people get HEPA air purifiers 
And I know that with the forest fires that have been going on, those have been flying off the shelves. People are thinking about air quality. And we're working All it takes out- is for the sky to turn orange when it really shouldn't be. Oh, my goodness. It looked like dune out here. <laughs> Oh, I appreciate the reference. As mentioned on an earlier episode of, of this particular show, I do have a version of the Litany of Fear on my laptop. So, yes, your your reference is appreciated. Yeah. Bring the nerd. And so we're doing all this mold stuff on the city level with the sanitary code and what we can do reaching out to tenants. But on the state level, I work with the mass EJ table. And so we've got a bill that we've pro- proposed. We call it the AQ bill, the air quality bill. And I'm going to pull up the, it's got a number to it that I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, but we're calling for increased air monitoring in EJ neighborhoods and other sensitive places, places by highways, schools, hospitals. Um, we're asking for air filtering in things like schools, hospitals, and certain residential buildings. And then we're also asking for mold regulation on the state level because there's really none that exists. And so not only are we attacking this at a city level, on a person-to-person level, giving out air purifiers, making this change, but also going at it at that systemic level with the state. Are there other municipalities who are also looking at mold as like a public health issue in the same way that Springfield now has been forced to do? So we really look to New York City for a lot of stuff. They have really great guidelines. They have really, like, strong tenants' rights, and they have really strong sanitary codes. So we've looked to, to them for a lot of stuff. The state of Connecticut and also just the state of New York have some really great resources as well. I think up until this point, mold hasn't been something that people are looking at because I think anybody who's looked into it, it like, at, at any amount will tell you that if we start to talk about mold and we start to address it, we're going to have to start talking abatement. And that's so much money. And that's money <laughs> nobody wants to spend on that. But it's what we need. Right. And so really the topic has not been broached because of these like financial concerns that people have. But I think as climate change progresses and it gets hotter and it gets wetter for longer periods, you know, hot and wet, that's what mold loves. It, it's going to become a mounting issue. We're not going to be able to ignore it. We're speaking with Rusty Polsgrove of Arise for Social Justice. They do environmental things and a whole bunch of other things. What are some of your other duties that have been spread out around Arise? You are a small, strong team doing <laughs> an awful lot of work. Well, these past few weekends, I've definitely been the muscle. Um, <laughs> we rallied for we rallied against the Eversource pipeline with Springfield Climate Justice Coalition, and so I borrowed my dad's pickup truck, and I was hauling <laughs> tables and chairs. And then on Memorial Day weekend, I was with Mothers of Angels and Tatiana Cheeks doing a memorial picnic for people who have lost children from conception all the way until your child is an adult. If you felt that loss, Mothers of Angels is an organization that brings together grieving parents. And so that was a really beautiful event to be a part of. Not only was I the muscle hauling some tables and chairs, but I, I had the um, blessing of being the MC. Um, and so we've been doing that. I'm getting ready to haul some stuff around for Juneteenth <laughs> on Monday. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Outside of that, um, I've been making a quilt that Arise is going to auction off at some point. Um, I made our potato sacks for our potato sack races. (laughs) And then I'm always in the office. We do a lot of advocacy in the office, so Mm -hmm. I'm always there. People bring in their kids. We love to see people's kids. 
So just, you know, also a little bit of everything. It's a real, you've already mentioned that Arise works with a lot of other organizations just kind of doing that co-networking to make more things happen. Can you speak to some of the, I mean, you've already outlined a, a handful <laughs> of other organizations that you work with, but what's the power in making those connections between organizations with like-minded ideals? I think the real power in that is that you can deeply mobilize a community. Um, one of the projects I work on is with the Live Well Coalition with Wayfinders and PVPC and a whole bunch of awesome people. Um, and we work with resident advocates. And so we have people throughout the city who get stipended to participate in, you know, the the movement that we pulled the city and that the people decided they wanted to have. And so one of those things is community choice energy. Um, we as a municipality, we purchase our energy from Eversource and they buy it from fossil fuel producers. But we don't have to do it that way. Eversource can still deliver our electricity and we can buy from renewable producers. And that's what community choice energy is, is it would be an opt out program where the citizens of Springfield would receive renewable energy. And we're not the first people to do this. Most of the other places that have done this have seen either the same energy costs or lower costs. And, you know, all for renewable energy, all right. to getting to that 80% reduction goal. <laughs> Any way that we can, because it's hard, hard getting there. But is that more of a campaign where, like, it's the constituents don't necessarily know about it? Was there, like, a paper campaign to encourage people to be more aware of it? Or, like, are people asking to try and participate? So... This project started three years ago before I was even at Arise. Um, you have inherited this project. I have. I have. I've inherited the good, the bad. I've inherited it all, and I love it all. Um, but we got this grant through Live Well from the Kresge Foundation to do this work. And so for about a year or two, they just did fact-finding and felt out what the city wanted in terms of climate change and health equity work. Um, and we came up with community choice energy and a racial health equity impact assessment, a development tool to reduce segregation in the city. Um, and so community choice energy we have um, has progressed into the public. We've launched it. We had a lot of buzz. It passed unanimously through city council. The mayor has put out an RFP. Basically, he's looking to hire an aggregator to do this work for us. And since that has happened a couple months ago, it's really been on a pause. Um, nothing else has happened. I know that there's an election cycle going on and people are very busy. So that's kind of where we're at. But what we're doing in the meantime is we're collecting petition signatures um, to support Community Choice Energy to show the mayor like, hey, like, Let's put a move on. Right. Let's put a move on. We're ready. We're excited. <laughs> and so at Juneteenth for a rise on Monday at Emerson C. Wright Park, the South End Community Center Park, um, Live Well will be there and we'll be collecting signatures in support of Community Choice Energy. Wicked, wicked cool. Are there other campaigns that are in the wings that you're really excited to bring to the people for change for Springfield? So we are working on some stuff surrounding housing That you can and talk utilities. about because if anything's like brewing and you're like, ah. Oh, see, that's the thing is we've got some stuff brewing. We're putting, we're putting the final details <laughs> into it. We've got some really great stuff coming. 
Um, but I, I, I can't be the one to let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> I want to find out about all of the new changes you're going to try and make. I know. We're looking. So we recently did our CUPS program, Community Utility Payments, and we gave out $60,000 to the people of Springfield through these utility payments, uh, make, making a real difference for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, and so we're looking to do more things in that vein. We're securing funding and making that happen, like, right now as we speak. Um, but we're, we're putting that back together because on the end of this public health crisis, the COVID public health crisis is over. And what we've been seeing, and I know we're not the only ones, is a ton of eviction notices coming in because the stay of eviction is over. A ton of people with utilities, electricity, gas cut off because... The public health crisis is over. So I feel like you're we are both hearing that over word in quotation marks because we're so because it's, it's not, not over because it's not over. But we're going to pretend it is. We're going <laughs> to pretend it is. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, these problems were already happening, but now we're seeing a dramatic increase. And so we're working to respond to that as quickly as we can and in the best way that we can. One more question, then we're going to take a, a, a quick break. So you were you got into a rise basically through engineering. Yes. <laughs> Have you been able to use that engineering in your current work of advocacy so beyond use of the pe- pickup truck? I use I use my engineering mindset all the time. I studied computer engineering at UMass Amherst for two and a half years before I ultimately switched programs. I got through <laughs> the really hard stuff and decided to call it quits. And so I'll be graduating this fall with my bachelor's degree with individual concentration in makerspace management. I study makerspaces. I study people and how they gather. And I study the way that we can distribute resources equitably and, and how we can use that to, to grow community. Seems eminently applicable. Absolutely. In these cases. Well, rest, coming up more with Rusty Polsgrove, we'll get into the Juneteenth celebrations themselves, which are happening on Monday. They are with Arise for Social Justice in Springfield. And you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We're with Rusty Polsgrove of Arise for Social Justice in Springfield. And the main reason I brought you in was not all the cool stuff that you're doing to try and make Springfield a healthier, happier place to be in. Although I feel like this celebration is part of making Springfield a healthier, happier place to be in. It's because you're throwing a Juneteenth celebration on Juneteenth, which is Awesome. And from what I can tell of this week and the people that I've spoken to, yours seems like maybe the longest running one or at least one of the longest running ones. Absolutely. So this is Arise's 13th I know. annual Juneteenth celebration. The celebration is in middle school now. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe it either. <laughs> it's so cool, though, to think that, like, even a decade, more than a decade ago, like folks got together and decided that it was important enough to throw something larger than, you know, just family gatherings or like just a, a local like block cookout, like something a little bit bigger that spread the love a little bit further. So what are some of the things that are going to be happening on Monday? 
Well, there's there's going to be a lot of things happening. Um, we are going to be singing the Black National Anthem. Yes, all the as, verses, not just the first one, the one that everybody knows. I'm not I'm not in charge of the mix. <laughs> all right? I'm the guy with the clipboard who makes sure people goes on stage. I am not the guy in charge of the mix. Just, just as important, I'm just saying that sometimes, <laughs> like usually in- You se- want to hear all the verses. Every February it gets brought up and then people just only only sing the first verse. And I'm like, there's like three more verses, y'all. Come on, let's yeah. we can do this. We can do it. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let them know. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to have- Tanisha Arena addressed the audience. She's a very powerful speaker. Mm-hmm. Every time she speaks, I feel like I just have to stand there slack-jawed and take it in. So she's going to be speaking. We're going to have an African dance. There's going to be double Dutch. We're going to have a talent showcase of some of our young community members. There's a whole lot going on. <laughs> We're also going to have some bingo going on, some games for the kids, potato sack races, all the things like a good cookout Potato sacks that you have made. Have, that I have made, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to be a great family event. We're having some really good food that's going to be fresh off the grill. We're getting some fresh produce from AC right on the corner. <laughs> so it's it's going to be a really great time. Um, I know that there's, there's a lot of Juneteenth stuff going on in Springfield. Um, and so I'm excited to see all of that happening over the weekend. But ours is going to be a free event and ours is family friendly. So bring the whole crew. <laughs> we got enough food for everybody. <laughs> Do you feel like you have to compete with some of the other Springfield Juneteenth celebrations now that everybody else is also throwing them? It's it's all love. It's all love. <laughs> there we go. Because it's Juneteenth and everybody should be celebrating it. I think we should celebrate it all the time. It's my July 4th. It's my freedom day. Um, But, you know, we want to make sure there's something for every demographic. I think there's a lot of really great stuff going on for adults. And we want to make sure that, like, kids are included. And we want to make sure that people who don't have 20 bucks for the fee to get into some of this stuff have a celebration they can go to. Right. Because Arise, you know, 30 years ago, we started as a poor people's organization. And we were started by women on welfare. And we really try to stay true to that and make sure that everybody is included you don't have to have money to be a part of our community that's wonderful you said juneteenth is your july 4th has that always been the case that is no it certainly has not always been the case <laughs> you have to ask <laughs> no you do and that's the thing it has not always been the case it's something that i feel i first started learning about in like 2017 2018 like right when stuff like that started to bubble to the surface, that was my first exposure. I first started actually celebrating it probably in like 2019 or 2020. I think that's really like on par with a lot of other people, especially when people were awakened by like the George Floyd rebellion Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I feel like that's, you know, when it came to the forefront for a lot of people. So I'm definitely new to this Juneteenth thing, but Understanding the concept and understanding that if everybody is not free, then I am not free because I am not benefiting from a just society. That's my freedom day, man. It's like July 4th, July (laughs) 4th. 
cheers to that. So you again, like Arise for Social Justice, and we are with Rusty Pulsgrove of Arise for Social Justice in Springfield, works with a lot of other organizations. Are some of those organizations that are very community minded going to be at the Juneteenth celebration to just, you know, spread the word to more of the people? Absolutely. So we have a tabling section. We have organizations from all over the city, some big organizations like we're going to have Planned Parenthood there. I always love their table. They've got great resources, especially during like, you know, this month of pride. If you're looking for HRT and stuff like that, I know that they do that. So we're going to have Planned Parenthood there. We're going to have the Springfield Family Doulas, I believe. I hope I got that right. (laughs) But we're going to have all sorts of community resources, people from around here who are going to be promoting their work and also joining us for the Juneteenth celebration. That is wicked cool. Have you been to other Juneteenth celebrations around the city or elsewhere in the area where you're you looked at their celebration and were like, oh, we should maybe do that too? <laughs> oh, all the time. I think I think every event that does Juneteenth has something about it where you're just like, wow, like that's completely different. And like I can't believe I couldn't think of that. And like, oh my goodness. And so I feel like every event I go to, I see stuff and I'm like, oh, man, like I got to keep that in mind. And sometimes it's like the bigger ideas, like I've seen people do interactive art and stuff like that, which I love, which I want to start incorporating into our events. But also sometimes it's just like this organizational stuff of like, oh, like that's how they organize like everybody getting their food. Like that's how they did the like we should do our condiments like that. It's like when you go into somebody else's house and you see how their books are stacked yeah. or like how they've done their bookcase and you're like, oh, that's a great idea. I'm totally doing this, which is what I do every time I'm near somebody who has a pile of board games because I am looking for ideas and I have too many. But <laughs> everybody has their vices. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Your Juneteenth is happening in Emerson Park. Has it always been in Emerson Park? Why Emerson Park? Is it what's good about what's useful about it being there? So for our Juneteenth, traditionally what we do is we pick a park that is kind of gross. It's kind of gross or maybe unsafe or needs to be cleaned up. And when you get a permit from the city to do events like this, they are obligated to clean that park before you use it. So we typically are choosing places that are not very nice because the city is then obligated to go in and clean them up. And so then we have our event, we clean up after ourselves, and then this community is now enjoying their park, which is clean again. And maybe it's not very clean very often. So that's our usual MO. And with the Mothers of Angels event that we were a part of, we were in Adams Park and it got cleaned up and that was really great to see um i think that emerson right is like not our usual we did it there this year because we haven't been out in that neighborhood before we haven't been to many of those parks because they're usually looking pretty good and so emerson c right we're in there this year because we want to be in this neighborhood i feel like for me i feel like it's a a very bright like center of Springfield like I really associate it with like a lot of stuff that I like to do and so I like being down there I think it's a great neighborhood so I'm happy to be there for this event and to bring in some people that haven't been to our Juneteenth before but every year will be someplace different so next year when you're ready to come to Juneteenth keep a lookout because it'll be someplace else that's awesome if people want to find out more about your particular Juneteenth celebration or how to get involved with Arise for Social Justice where should they go So you should definitely check out our Facebook page, Arise for Social Justice. Check out our Facebook. We are also ariseforsocialjustice.org. 
Um, that's our website. That's where you can get more info on us, donate to us, um, get involved with our different committees. Um, we have an email form. And if you get in touch, in touch through that, like, contact us form, it'll go to my inbox. So you'll get to talk to me. It'll okay. be great. I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> um, and then, as always, you can call our office. Um, and we would love to hear from you. Fantastic. Rusty Polsgrove, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me about all the cool things that Arise does, including the Juneteenth celebration happening on Juneteenth specifically. Yeah, I thank you so much for having me. (laughs) No problem. It was great to be here. Yay! (laughs) Next week on The Fabulous 413, Monty is back and I will not be so alone. But the cool thing about next week is that we are going to be broadcasting live from the Green River Festival. Oh yeah, you heard us right. So get ready for us to be around a pile of musicians. And not only that, we're going to be talking with the folks from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me before that as well when they gear up to be at Tanglewood. Our director Director is Tony, vicariously taking on my stress. Done again. <laughs> our engineer is Betsy Langto. We've got Bart Rankin on our technical team, as well as Kara Foster and Punk Root Boy Dubay. Thanks to Spouse Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Charles Bradley, Janelle Monet, and Prince D'Angelo, the Wu Tang Clan, and Sunny War. I'm Khalees Smith. Join us next week on the Fabulous 413.